I'm deeply thankful to be able to worship with you, and I invite you now to worship through the Word, uh, turning with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14 is where we find ourselves. Pastor Ron Jor did a wonderful job last week taking us through uh, Romans 14, uh, verses 1 to 12, and I'll get the rest of the chapter, uh, verses 13 through 23. So I invite you to turn there, Romans 14, 13 through 23. And while you're turning there, I just want to uh, acknowledge that we have about 18 women that have gone on a women's retreat this weekend, and so thankful to God that uh, for Tracy Gallagher's leadership there, and that they get a chance to be away and to focus on uh, Jesus. And I thank you for any of the uh, the husbands and uh, fathers that have stayed back and maybe. Uh, just shouldered a little bit more in order that they might be able to go. And I'm thankful to God for you and uh, making that possible. So they'll be back later on today, Lord willing. So I want to pray for them. And I want to uh, pray for our time after I read the passage. I'm just going to read verse 13. But as I said, we'll go verses 13 through 23. The Word of God says this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather, decide this. To never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to have open hearts, soft heart, a heart that just longs to hear from you and wants to follow you no matter what you say. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us right now with this one fact that you love us. You proved it at Calvary. And as you've said in Romans 8, nothing will separate us, your children, from your love. And so I pray that we feel in this moment deeply loved, deeply encouraged, deeply secure in your presence with us. And it would change us. It would allow us to be a people that can disagree and still be unified. It would allow us to be a people who don't see things the same and love deeply. So I pray for the sake of your name, for the good of your church, you would work a great thing in our midst. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Halloween. It's happening, right? Tomorrow, it's coming up. Halloween is uh, has a very kind of windy, complicated history. I don't know if you know much about Halloween, but uh, by the 4th century, November the 1st was known as All Saints Day, or All Hallow Tide. What that was, was it was a commemoration of all those who had died for the faith. It was a time that the 
churches gathered together to remember those who had died for their faith. And so, on All Hallows Eve, or shortened to Halloween, it was the night before that time. Now, some believe All Hallows Eve began as a Celtic pagan uh, holiday and that Christians took it from there. Others believe All Saints Day came first. Either way, doesn't really matter to me. Um, but let's just say it had strong Celtic pagan roots. Just put that in your back pocket and let's keep walking. How did it get to America? Well, there were Irish and Scottish immigrants that took many of these All Hallow Eve customs and brought them to North America in around the 1800s. And then also to many other countries. Now, there are popular All Hallows Eve traditions, okay, or Halloween traditions. Like this one. Many believed that many practiced what were called making soul cakes, which were little shortbread cakes that people would make as uh, an expression of commemorating those who have died for the faith. They would make little soul cakes. And those who would go from door to door to get these cakes were called solars. S-O-U-L-E-R-S. And they were mainly children and the poor. And they would go from door to door and they would sing and they would say prayers for the souls of the givers and their friends. Now, Catholics also incorporated this and took it that you would also pray for those who are in purgatory. Purgatory is an unbiblical concept. And they did that anyway. Now, souling, many times, those who went souling, they would hollow out a turnip and put a light in it. Some said that represented a dead soul. But they would hollow out a turnip, because it was usually dark, and they would use this as a lantern to go from door to door. And this is where many believe that the hollowing out of a pumpkin to create a light uh, came from. Sometimes these pumpkins... Uh, were also said to warn off evil spirits. Okay, once again, I'm just telling you history. I'm not commending. One group believed that the souls of the departed, now get this, I found this fascinating. One group believes that the souls of the departed, that means those who have died, that their souls had kind of one year to kind of roam around the earth and seek vengeance on enemies. And they thought that they would move on to the next world on All Saints Day. So All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, was the last moment they had to bring vengeance on their enemies. So, what people did was they would dress up in order to mask their real appearance so that these souls would not know who they were and they would not seek vengeance. So you would wear costumes. I thought it was fascinating. Bizarre, but fascinating. All unbiblical. It's guesswork. It's conjecture. We get that. It's crazy. And so, this is All Hallows' Eve. Halloween. Now some hear this, and they say, by participating at all in Halloween, I am celebrating 
its possible Celtic pagan roots. And I'm giving credence to the false doctrine of purgatory. Others watch people perpetuate lies or glorify darkness or talk of satanic things in the occult. And they will conclude that as a Christian, I cannot participate in Halloween. Others, they say it didn't have pagan roots. It actually had Christian roots and pagans came and hijacked it. Others say even if it had pagan roots, even if many who participate in it today emphasize false and evil things, similar to Christmas, how it's become something of materialism and Santa rather than about Jesus, I don't have to follow their path. These people would say, actually, I'm not going to celebrate the evil as a Christian, but I'm going to enjoy candy. I'm going to enjoy dressing up. I'm gonna, this is actually the best opportunity that I have in a year to hang out with my lost neighbors. It's an opportunity for me to be generous. By the way, if you celebrate Halloween, don't be stingy, okay? Be generous with what you give. And so these people would say, no, I can celebrate Halloween. Those who can't celebrate it, they look at those who do, and they say, can you be a Christian and celebrate Halloween? Those who do celebrate it, look at those who don't and say, it's just, why are you being so silly and so legalistic and so strict? Two Christians, opposite viewpoints. The temptation to judge one another. How in the world can we live in peace? We have the same God. We're in the same church. Two different viewpoints. Yikes. What do we do? Well, here comes, inspired by God Himself, Paul, in Romans 14. And he says, first of all, Verse 1, Romans 14, don't quarrel over opinions. Very helpful beginning. Don't be argumentative. Don't be known for being argumentative. It's not sharing your convictions, that's the problem, but insisting that others share your convictions too. You get heated, you try to convince them, many resort to name calling. Paul says, Especially to the ones who are, and now he introduces a category Pastor Ranjior helped us with, those who are strong in faith. That is, those who have a freer conscience. In this category, they would be ones that say, I believe that Halloween is free for all. It's, it's not unclean in and of itself. It's what you do with it that can make it clean or unclean. They would be stronger in faith according to Paul. Those who are restricted say, in my conscience, I cannot do this. They would be called weaker in faith. And Paul is especially warning those who are stronger in faith, don't pass judgment or don't quarrel with those who are weaker in faith. Their faith is fragile. Stop being quarrelsome. So, just note to self, if you enjoy quarreling, if you find arguments as sport, Stirring up controversy, arguing more than encouraging, Paul says it's time to be known for something else. It's time to be known for building up 
for encouraging, for listening. There is a greater joy in being known as an encourager than a quarreler. And so he goes on that we know in life experience, it's not just Halloween that can bring some tension, right? Let's just lay out some lists. Like, okay, what type of school do you send your kids to? Public school, private school. All those are evil options. I must homeschool. Homeschoolers saying that this is a great way to care for my kids and to give them the gospel. And public schoolers saying the same thing. Which one's right? Which one's wrong? What do we do? What about the clothes you wear? Issues of modesty and respect. What about other holidays? Some totally cut out all holidays. What about what we eat or what we drink? A hot button topic is alcohol. What do we do with that? What about what we watch? TV or movies? Is that permissible? Is that permissible? What about even the forms we use to practice our faith, like certain types or styles of music? Some people even argue over the frequency of the Lord's Supper, how often we should do it. Liturgy or not liturgy. You can have a church that's fully convinced on care for the poor, but some think you really need to be invested in this cause, and others think you need to be really invested in this cause. Which one's right? Which one's wrong? What should we do? Even how we practice certain disciplines. So God clearly lays out that we're a people of the Word and prayer and fasting and meditation. How often should we do it? Is that a weekly thing? Is that a daily thing? And we can really just get restricted and we can fight over these things. Paul in his day mentioned two areas, right? Meat sacrifice to idols and worshiping on a certain day. Meat sacrifice to idols is, <clears throat> as Pastor Ranjur shared, they would take an animal, they would sacrifice it in a pagan temple, and then they would, after it was used in this pagan worship service, they would hang it up in a meat market where you would buy your food. So the Jews were like, I can't, some of them were like, I can't do that. It's been sacrificed over here. To eat this meat is to participate in that worship. And others were like, no, it's just meat. So I can eat it and I really enjoy meat. So some would eat only vegetables. Some felt the freedom to eat meat. What do they do with that tension? Same with what day you worship on. Here's the question. How do we navigate these differences? First of all, I want you to navigate it with hope. What's going to happen in Romans 15, one of my favorite verses, I can't wait to preach that passage too. 15.13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The God of hope is on the scene at work in His church so when we face disagreements, we don't have to face them with despair, but with hope because the God of hope is with us working for our good. Do not face this as a cynic or with great pessimism. Face it with hope. No matter the horrible experiences you've been through, God promises that He is at work right now and He is able to make, hear this, those with differing convictions, this passage, differing gifts, Romans 12, and even different ethnicities, Romans 15, He is able to make all of those differences come together, not by making them all the same, 
but by bringing them together under the same Jesus who unifies us even though we are not uniform. So, there's hope. That's what He's breathing into us. So, how do we navigate peace in the midst of differing convictions? Three questions. Not one question. Not two questions, but three questions Paul gives us. One, is it sin wise? Is it permissible? That's one question, one idea. Is it sin? Okay. Is actively participating in demon worship sin? Yes. I can tell you that without a shadow of a doubt. The Bible is really clear. No other gods before me, right? Is eating candy and dressing up and going door to door sin? No. It's not prohibited in the scriptures, right? Can we agree on that? In and of themselves. Okay. So, like eating meat sacrificed to idols, if you participate in the sacrificing and worshiping of that idol, you're sinning. You've just got another God before God. But, if you eat the meat that's hung up in the market afterwards, Paul says, it's not unclean. It's just meat. Halloween is just a day. So, then we've got to ask a second question. So is it sin? You've got to ask, is it sin? Does the Bible say, don't do it? The second question is, is it unto the Lord? Can you do this from faith? And this, is, this acknowledges a category that I think many of us struggle with, and it's a category that some things are not simply right and wrong. I even used it when I was describing all the different ways that we can disagree, right? Oh, to, to send your kid to this school or to this school that's right or wrong. No, Paul has a separate category. We need to move away from right and wrong and think good, better, and best. There's other categories out there. Why do I know there's another category? Romans 14.14. 14. A verse in our passage today. Paul says this, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. What? It's crazy. You get it? Paul says, I know and I am persuaded eating that meat is not a sin for me. But if you think it's a sin for you, then in, and you eat that meat, it's sin for you. He's got a category that the same action is sin for one and not for another. We've got to get Paul's categories. So now we're asking the question, is that unclean to you? What does that mean? It means what he also says in Romans 14.23, the very last verse in our passage for today, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Can you do it from faith? Meaning, can you do it unto the Lord? Can you do it with the Lord on your mind? Praise in your heart. Thanksgiving in your soul. Can you do it unto the Lord? If you can, then you can do it. As long as it's not against God's commands. If you can't, then it's sin to you and you should not do it. Can you do it from faith? And this point is pretty crucial. It's a category that Romans 14, 6-8 gives us. 
same chapter, when Paul says, here's how you treat the everyday activities of life. you got to think about it this way. Romans 14, verses 6 to 8. The one who observes a day, observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. Summary, can you do it as unto the Lord? Can your mind be honoring to God while you do this activity? This is a flag of caution. Waving to all of us as we dive into our everyday lives. He is saying, enjoy fully all that you do. But enjoy it fully by enjoying God in it. Don't put Him on the sidelines. He he should be on your mind and on your heart. Watching a movie with your kids. Throw in football. I'm not saying that every time I'm watching a movie, I'm pausing it every 10 seconds and saying, now here's how Jesus is applying here to this point. And I'm not saying that as I'm throwing a football, I'm like, Jesus, 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 He's wonderful. Catch that. Oh, Jesus is wonderful. I'm not saying that it's like every word that comes out of your mouth and if you're not explicit, you're sinning. Once again, you add laws that aren't in the Bible. What I am saying is this. Does the activity make you check out from God? Or... Does the activity lead you to be mindful of Him? Honoring to Him. As the passage says, thankful to Him. Can, here's a test that I give to my own heart. Can I pray in my mind at any point in this activity, whether it's working out, watching TV, sex and marriage, eating a good meal, riding a bike, sports, the list is long. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all what? To the glory of God. Can God be on your mind? Can you pray in the midst of that activity? Can you do it as unto the Lord? So, question one, is it sin or is it wise? Question two, can you do it as unto the Lord? Is He on your mind? But Paul says there's not just two questions. There's three questions we have to ask. And the third question is, is it loving to my neighbor? Or specifically, is it free from causing my spiritual brother or sister? Is it free from causing them to stumble? If the answer is no, we shouldn't do it. If the answer is yes, we can. And this is where we get in verse 13. Paul says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. It's going to frame these final minutes that we have as these two clear commands in verse 13. Don't pass judgment. You're freed to trust. And don't put a stumbling block to another's faith. You're freed to love. You see that in verse 13. Don't pass judgment on one another any longer. He reiterates what he has been saying multiple times throughout this passage already. 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment on another. Judge one another no longer. <clears throat> verse, Romans 14, verse 3 kind of gives us insight into this. When he says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So you, let's follow this. Let not the one who feels a free conscience to eat this meat hate the one who feels a restricted conscience. And why would you do that? Because their restricted conscience, they're saying there isn't freedom in Christ to do this. Sometimes they put that on others and you feel like I have a freedom that God has given me and I can't do that freedom. I'm angry at you. Paul says, don't be that way. Don't despise that person. But then he looks at the one who is, has a restricted conscience or is weak in faith. The one who says, I can't do that. It's unclean to me. And he says, don't pass judgment on the one who has a freer conscience. Who says it's not unclean. And you can see why that would be tempting. You become convinced in your heart that God says no to you. And you're like, well, if He says no to me, He's got to say no to them. And if they're saying no to God, then they're not spiritual. So you pass judgment. Paul's saying you've got to have a different category. There's a category of something being unclean to you and clean to someone else. We're not talking about things specifically spelled out in the Scriptures that are prohibited. We're talking about these areas of freedom. So, to be clear, pointing out biblical sin with love and humility, self-awareness, a heart ready to forgive, that's not the problem being addressed here. That's not passing judgment. Passing judgment is on these secondary issues not spelled out in Scripture. It's the scowl. It's the silent treatment of judgment. It's the looking down on others. It's the self-lifting and the others putting down judgment that Paul is saying, put that to death. you got to kill that. <clears throat> Don't pass judgment on one another. Why? Because it communicates false things about God. You're basically saying, I will only accept you if you think like I think. Don't we praise the Lord that He doesn't say that to us? Only in the sense that think what I think in that Jesus is my Savior. He's my only hope. These secondary things that we are wrestling with these others on, that's not what gives us salvation. What gives us salvation is agreeing with God that He is the only way. Agreeing that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Agreeing with God that His way is best. And He says, welcome one another and when we judge, we're not welcoming. We're distorting the picture of God's acceptance and love. So, verse 13 is saying it's not only the weak who can judge, but even the strong can get in on the judgment party. Strong versus weak, it's not the point. The point is, don't pass judgment. And he says, you're freed from judgment. Because you can trust God to bring the change and you can trust God to be the judge. 
Pastor Ron Jure walked us through wonderfully with this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to highlight you're freed to trust God to do the changing. You can't change people. That's his argument in Romans 14.4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord makes people stand in the faith. The Lord changes the heart. Parents, you cannot ultimately change your kids. And many times we buy into the lie that we can, so we yell louder, get angrier. That's how we will move them. It will move them to change outwardly, but it will never change their hearts. We do it to our spouses. We do it to our friends. We do it in our small groups. If I just express my disappointment, if I express my shame and my my struggle with them, if I get angry and frustrated, that will move the needle of change. And yet God in His mysterious providence has an upside down version of how change goes. Romans chapter 2. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. It's the reminding of the love of God for that sinner that brings repentance. And many times we are convinced that our words, our tone, our scowl, our silence, our shaming is more powerful than our prayers, our patience, our love. God is the changer. We've got to be convinced of that. It doesn't mean that we won't point out struggles. It'll change how we do it. The Lord brings the change. And let me just say, underscore, exclamation point, don't forget this, the Lord loves to change. That's what the cross is about. He sent His Son because He is as committed to to changing you as He was to saving your soul. He is as committed to your change, child of God, as He was to dying on Calvary because dying on Calvary was the beginning of the change process and what Jesus was beautifully said of was, and He loved them to the end. That's what our God does. He loves you to the end. He doesn't just start something and then quit it. He finishes it. You can trust that God is the changer and He loves to change us. It sets you free from a burden that's way too heavy to try to change your neighbor. And, let's just be clear, God's change will go at the right pace and it will happen in the right place of that person's soul. Far deeper, far more penetrating, far more longer lasting than our harsh words and our scowl and our shaming can ever do. He just does it well. And you know that in your own heart. Your change has been a process. Most of it it has not been immediate. And it's being reminded of the security of the love of God for you that has kept you keeping going even though you know you're not walking perfectly in the day to day. Confess your sin. Find the freedom of forgiveness. The Lord loves to change. You can trust Him that He changes and you can trust Him that He's the judge of all things. Like you're freed up from judging because He's the judge of all things. Like you can just trust Him. 
when we don't trust that He's going to do it right, then we feel like we got to step in. It's a heavy burden. But here's one argument that I think is really crucial for why we should not pass judgment. Our perspective is so limited. We have a limited perspective. And God just wants us to be set free from needing to be judgment passers and to trust Him. Here's what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-5. to Listen to how Paul talks about judgment here. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Here's Paul talking about himself. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. But I'm not thereby acquitted. What's that mean? My perspective of myself is not infallible. I've got blind spots. So I don't even fully, I can't even fully judge myself. And some of you who are walking around in self-condemnation, God won't love me, God can't forgive this, I'm too dirty, you are making a judgment that is short-sighted. You can't accurately judge yourself. And God says the opposite. He can change any of us. His grace is more powerful than our sin. And Paul is just saying here, you can't even judge yourself rightly because you are limited in your view. So, He keeps going. It is the Lord who judges me. There's only one who sees fully and rightly. Therefore, he says to everybody in the church, do not pronounce judgment until the time. What's the time? Until the time you feel like it? No. Until Jesus comes back. That's the time. That's the time when you're Seeing through a glass dimly when your fuzzy seeing will become clear. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. It's on those, and it's at that time when God will bring judgment. Now, get this, this is crazy. He says, Then each one of you will receive his. I thought it would say condemnation, right? Like the person you're frustrated at and you want to judge, it's like, that's when they're going to get it. He doesn't say condemnation. What's the judgment of His church look like? It's commendation. It's the word praise. It's the word of, I'm going to point out all the grace that I saw in your life. I'm going to point out that you trusted me and you're here by grace alone and it's going to highlight my glory and it's going to remind you that you're loved. It's a judgment of commendation for the people of God. He flips it upside down. That's what we can trust. God's going to do it right. We don't have to. Oh, dear friends. I believe wholeheartedly this is why He allows some of us to be restricted in conscience, weak in our faith, and some of us to be stronger in our faith and more free in our conscience. And let's just be really clear. You are both strong and weak. 
because there are too many areas out there. You're strong in some areas, you're weak in other areas. You're strong in some areas, you're weak in other areas. This is just how the crazy human heart is. But I believe He allows those differences in the church so that those who want to take their freedom and run too far will be pulled back. Because we're too blind, we don't see clearly, and we don't handle extremes well. And those who are restricted, they need the people of freedom to kind of pull them out of their law-keeping is the way that I get accepted by God. We need each other. And the very thing that we need in each other, we end up fighting each other and trying to leave each other when God says the very thing you're leaving is the very means of grace I'm meaning to keep you. So He says don't pass judgment on one another. You can trust Him to change. You can trust Him to judge. And then He finally says don't, don't put a stumbling block in one another's faith. You are freed to love. You are freed to love. What is this word stumbling block found in 13? It's just what it says. You're walking on a path and you put a big boulder in the way. Don't put something... The walk of faith is hard enough. Don't put something in the way he's got to step over or could trip on. Well, then you ask, well, what in the world is that? Well, he's doing an interesting word play here and I don't want you to miss it. Verse 13... Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. We just covered that. People. But then he says, rather, if you want to judge something, judge this more. That's the literal. If you want to judge something, you judge this more. Here's what you judge. I will not put a stumbling block in front of my brother or sister. So if you're bent on being... On being to unjudging, then just make this decision. I'm not going to put a stumbling block in front of my brother or sister. That's the third question that he says we must ask as we walk through, is it sinful? Is it unto the Lord? Is it loving? Is it free from causing my brother or sister to stumble? What Paul is saying here is, my main aim is the growth of your faith. More than exercising my freedoms. It's immensely practical. It's a mindset shift. Paul says, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. (laughs) Do you see what he just did? You got people like Let's just picture. It's like a church service. Except this is a letter. You follow that, right? It's like a church service. And in the service, some people have said, I can't eat this meat because it's unclean. And Paul is just out louding, nothing is unclean. And so those in the room are like, wow, that makes me feel a little squeamish. I've assessed something wrong. And then he goes on to say, but if it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean, it's unclean. And then they're like, oh wow, okay. I just want to underscore. Paul is saying in the same congregation will be people who disagree on these secondary issues. 
And so then, he lays out what it might look like to not put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved, brother or sister, is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now this word grieved, it doesn't mean if they get angry over your convictions. Anger is usually a sign of judgment. He's not talking about somebody gets angry that you have a differing conviction. So, Paul stated his opinion. That was not the problem. So, if you state your opinion and somebody gets angry over that, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that while you practice your freedom, someone is deeply stricken spiritually in their heart. The word grief is the same word used for sadness over a death. They feel like that by being with you, their conscience is stricken. Watching a movie with you, its content, or something that's said, it just strikes them. It doesn't strike you, it strikes them. And it's like, I just can't do this then you're able to say, well, let's just not watch it. You don't say, well, I'm free. Do your own thing. Because what you're saying is, you are more important than my freedom. You're worth it. You're worth it. Your heart is more important than my freedom. Paul says, Pulling off of Romans 13, the whole law is fulfilled in love. Love says, I want to live my life in a way that doesn't vex you spiritually. That doesn't just constrict your spiritual conscience. He uses the word of grieving. If eating this certain type of food or drinking this certain type of drink in front of you hurts your conscience, it's not worth it to me. You're worth it to me. The relationship is worth it to me. More than my freedom. Their heart is greater than your right. And so you can see, those of you who might feel free in a certain area, and someone comes to you and says, I just, I don't think I can do this with you right now. I, I'm really struggling. You could, you could see why now their stricken conscience is limiting your actions. That's why Paul says don't despise that one with a stricken conscience. Right? Because now you know you're free. You're free to eat brisket that was hanging in the market. And they're like, I, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And so now you can't eat brisket? It's just like, man, that's frustrating. He says, don't despise them. How in the world do we not do that? You don't just like stop despising. Verse 15 says, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. What does He do? He takes us who are looking at our freedom and He says, look to Christ. And when you look at Christ, 
Your freedom is not what's ultimate. The one who purchased the freedom is what's ultimate. Your gaze is wrong. The only way that you'll keep from hating or passing judgment is if you look to the cross. And it's at the cross when you begin to remember Jesus died for them too. That one who is stricken in their conscience and me who might feel freer in this one area, we're both going to be sitting at the feet of Jesus together because of the blood of Christ. And so he's saying, you've got to look at something other than your freedom. You've got to look at the one who purchased your freedom. And when you look at the cross, it makes us equal. It rehumanizes that person that you demonized. It recategorizes how you're thinking about life. And it sets you free. One day you're going to be with Jesus. And it reminds you how much He loves you. And then so astonished by the love of God for you, you're filled up to love that person with a different conscience. And so He says, do not destroy those who are free in a certain area. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't prize the movie over your friend. Don't prize the meal or the day over the person. Don't prize your freedom or your rights over your brother and sister. Verse 16 tells us why. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He's saying, if you let these secondary things bring a division between you and your brother or sister, you're making a mockery of what is good, which is the Gospel. And how many of you have heard in talking to unbelievers, them highlight, oh, well, the church isn't getting along here, or it's divided and has schisms over here, and as they bring that up as a testimony for why they don't want a part of the church. What is good, the Gospel that unifies people with different convictions and different gifts, and even different ethnicities, what is good is now being spoken of as evil because we cannot get along across our differences. So don't destroy your brother or sister. Because in so doing, you're not only hurting them, but you're distorting the good news of Jesus to the outside world. Verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You make these secondary issues primary, you minimize the centrality of the Gospel. You minimize righteousness. You minimize joy. You minimize peace. And you elevate secondary things. Like, can I drink alcohol or not? The Bible says you're free. But you can't get drunk. That's what the Bible says. But there are several that cannot drink alcohol at all because of a temptation 
because it has destroyed their families. And in their conscience, they are stricken and they say, I can't do that. So, in their presence, not drink alcohol. If it is vexing their faith, it is hurting their faith because you are saying, they are more important to me than my freedom. We have to ask, is it free from causing a brother or sister from stumbling? And most of the opportunities we have to live this out is with those who are closest to us. Our spouses, our kids, our small group, our friends. It's, that, it's those individuals where it brings the most tension. It can destroy marriages. My wife brought up one time that uh, we were talking about this passage at the dinner table and she brought up the one time when way back early in our marriage there was a movie that I wanted to watch and she just could not go there. And it, it was like a war movie and it was just it was too graphic of death and it had like words that were not helpful for her and she just like I can't go there and so I just said okay we're not going there we just won't watch it. And what happened is over time I don't know exactly what happened but I just didn't keep bringing that back up and badgering her. I'm free. I'm free. You should let me watch. You should let me watch. You should let me. It's not the point. The point was, she's more important to me. And for whatever reason, in that moment, it, it wasn't helpful for her. So you just choose not to. This is one thing that's interesting about the restricted conscience is that it can change over time. And it, she came and said, I, I totally get it. Like, I get that when you watch a war movie, you tell me that it actually helps you remember that death is imminent and it helps you live more in light of the fact that this life is not forever. I can get that. I understand that now. You're free. I'm not going to watch it with you because I don't like it, but I, I get it. it. You're free. These are the kind of conversations we have with those that know us best. Paul goes on to say, he says, verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. Verse 22, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You don't have to go out and talk about all your convictions all the time. It can be something that is private. But I will say this as a caution. Somebody better know your convictions. Because if not, mutant things, David Pallison says, grows in the secret. Don't go hiding everything. There should be some that know your convictions and know what you're wanting and know what you feel a freedom to and, and a lot of things. But everybody doesn't have to know. Because sometimes it can just bring up division. The faith you have, he says, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You're happier and at peace if your conscience isn't stricken because you're causing that brother or sister to stumble. So whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's not eating from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
What is our job? We end here on verse 18 and 19. But whoever chooses not to put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister, you are serving Christ. You're serving Christ. And there's a pleasingness to God. And others will look on and approve. So then church, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I encourage you. Ask not just one question, is it sinful? Ask two questions. Can I do this activity as under the Lord? And ask a third question. Is it free from causing a specific brother or sister from stumbling? Church, don't pass judgment. But be set free. Trust the Lord. That He will judge rightly and He is bringing change in His people. And church, let's decide right now. We won't put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister because the relationship is more important than our freedom. Let's walk in love. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that we can walk in love because You have first loved us. And this doesn't answer all the questions. Sometimes it brings up more questions. There's things that can become confusing. But part of this is because we aren't meant to walk by law, but by the Spirit. And so, Father, I just ask that in these areas that are not clearly condemned in Scripture, that You would help us to walk in love. And that You would fill us by Your Holy Spirit. And we would love our neighbor as ourself, considering them more significant than ourself. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that in this moment, we would reflect on how we can live this out. And we would enjoy, we would enjoy singing praises to you.